Hi, everyone. My name is Miles Surratt, and I serve as the Associate Director of Campus Activities and Events at Clemson University. I'm also happy to be your host for the NASA Leadership Podcast presented by the Student Leadership Program's Knowledge Community. My guest today is Melissa, Melissa Kish. Melissa currently serves as the Director of Education and Leadership Development for the North American Interfraternity Conference. Melissa oversees the development and implementation of NIC educational programs, including PRIME, the Summit of IFC Presidents, LAUNCH, IMPACT, the Undergraduate Interfraternity Institute, and, uh, and IFC Academy. She works with the NIC education team to select and train program facilitators and assure the overall quality of NIC programming for students and campuses. Previously, Melissa held roles at Indiana University and at the University of Alabama. Melissa holds graduate and undergraduate degrees from Ball State University. Welcome, Melissa. Thank you. Happy to be here. Yeah, yeah, happy to have you, happy to to uh, get to know you a little better and then to then to talk about uh, leadership in the Greek context. So uh, let's start with just some, some get to know you questions and I'm about to, I think I'm about to ask the longest question in the, in the history of the podcast. So um, uh, settle in. Um, so you spent a lot of formative years of your life in Muncie, Indiana, and you grew up in the state and currently work there. And I share all this to ask two questions about the TV shows about the TV show Parks and Recreation, famously set in small town Indiana, but not actually shot and filmed in the state. Um, do you think the repeated making fun of Muncie is fair? And for context, one notable character, uh, Jerry or Gary, kind of goes back and forth uh, on the show has a timeshare in Muncie, which is much to the amusement of the rest of the characters. So I guess we'll start there. Do you think their repeated making fun of Muncie is fair? I don't know if they're repeat if it is fair per se. Um, I think that Muncie is one of those places that you have to be there and develop a certain love for it. So from the outside, um, it probably is one of those places that is very easy to take some hits at, not a lot going on. Um, but when you're there, and especially Ball State University, that um, is really kind of the, the heart and soul of Muncie in a lot of ways, um, is just a really, really fantastic place, and there's some amazing things that are happening there. That being said, not a lot going on outside of that. So as far as some of the knocks that they make, um, it's an easy place to be able to pick on for sure. Okay, well, so follow-up to that. Um, how do you think, so I felt like when I watched that show that there were several times where it was just sort of like, well, I guess my question is, how do you think that they gathered their information about Indiana in order? They obviously weren't there. I don't know how many of the people that were involved with the show were, uh, like, from Indiana. Um, and so I, I kind of wonder, you know, like, they make fun of, of Jerry for having a timeshare in Muncie. There's another moment where they, like, talk about sending one, someone to the federal, uh, to like the federal penitentiary in Terre Haute. Like, do you think that I'm kind of of the belief that they just like Googled places when they needed to find information, they were like writing something and they're like, Oh, we're going to threaten to send someone to jail. Let's make a reference to Terre Haute. Do you think that that's, do you think that that's how they gathered their information? I think that is a very good place to start. I think that is the easy answer, but I want to believe in my heart that it is far more complicated than that. So the story that I have <laughs> created and told myself is that I think someone that is part of that show team that was just an integral part of the entire Parks and Rec experience is from Indiana, and I'd like mm -hmm. to think that you know they just sat around telling the tales of their people, 
and would just, you know, drop the knowledge of Indiana and all of the amazing, um, wonderful, and not so wonderful things that are part of the state and that uh, for the rest of the, the crew and the squad uh, working on the show, they were just so overcome and so overwhelmed with all this new knowledge that how could they not incorporate it in their brand new show? That's what I'm going to believe. And then they Googled for fact-checking, of course, because why not? I, do you think that your memoir title could be telling the tales of their people? Do you think that that I could be, uh, a think that'd be good? Percent. A thousand percent. <laughs> All right. So, well, to stay in a very serious line of questioning, can you share about your struggles in effectively raising a Chihuahua? So I, you know, I made some mistakes in raising a Chihuahua. So um, <laughs> I, I think I started very strong, um, and my feminist nature was wanting to overtake my my child rearing of my Chihuahua and make her a strong, independent Chihuahua. And I think in doing that, unfortunately, she became so strong and so independent that she wants no friends. Um, she doesn't want to interact with other dogs. She barely wants to interact with people. Um, and so she just very much lives her life and expects everyone else to adjust. And so, um, yeah, doesn't have any friends. Uh, so maybe I can take a picture of her, but it's going to be one and you only get one shot. Um, and so she just, she's very set in her ways, and she is very much um, not the best um, at making friends or interacting with others. Mm. It's hard. It's very hard. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I think the goal a lot of us should have in life is just to be okay being with ourselves. You know, I think that that's like a baseline goal that we should all have. And, and I think that you really, really helped, helped your, your chihuahua get to that place. You know, if you're okay being with yourself, then like almost everything else in life can fall in line, you know. So um, I, I think, you know, I think on that, on that front, real runaway success. I think the best part is she's staring at me. It's, she knows that I am talking about her right now. She's giving me a side eye, and it's, it's very much a strong message of say my name one more time. You know, sit, talk about me one more time, and, you know, I'm going to eat your shoe, or I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make sure that you know that that was not an okay thing to do. So it really brings me to life. Here. I am, not, I am not here for your amusement, yeah. Right, exactly. Well, that's good. That's good. Um, okay, I know, I know you really love to read. I um, know you really love fiction. So what's the best book that you've read in the last six months? So full disclaimer, this, um, there, were, there were two questions that um, you wanted to talk about that were the two hardest questions, I think, for me to answer, and this is definitely one of them. You are correct. Mm -hmm. I am a huge reader. And so asking, um, even in the past six months, what um, my, the best book I've read is, is just a hard question to answer. But I do have one. So I am a big fan of books, especially in fiction, and I feel this way about television shows as well, that if they can be very disarming in teaching and building context and building empathy in a different way. And so I, in the past six months, have read the book Small Great Things by Jodi Picoult. 
And mm. it really is a book that takes on race and race relations and understanding different sides. And so um, if you have not read that for anyone that is listening, um, I highly recommend it. I have bought it for numerous people and numerous students because I think it is such a great entry point into a conversation on race that um, brings defenses down and really covers different perspectives in a really interesting way that I haven't seen um, often done in fiction work. So that gets my past six months seal of approval. Okay. Small great thing, Shady Picoult. That's, that, that's the move. Um, okay. I know you like to recreate meals that you find. Um, so what is your biggest success on that front? What was the, what was the meal that you, that you found somewhere out in the world and you're like, I'm going to make that at home that you just feel like, you know, I nailed that or maybe I even improved on it? So I would definitely say um, my most recent huge success is Panera's mac and cheese. And if you, are, if you have ever had Panera's macaroni and cheese, you know that it is just a glorious gift to the world in so many different ways. And found a recipe online, and it has definitely made some tweaks here and there, but that has been the big one recently. And if I don't have to go to Panera to get my mac and cheese, that is a huge win. Well, there you go. Glorious gift to the world. Keep, keep giving us right. memoir titles. Just keep right. giving us memoir titles. It's been a, it's been a very, strong, very strong start to the podcast on that front. Um, all right, so I know you're getting the itch to travel. Where are you thinking about going? I'm actually leaving today. So I'm going to San Diego. Um, yeah, I know. Surprise. So I, um, I will be leaving later on this afternoon. Um, it's the morning right now. But um, going to San Diego, we do a, an IFC Academy for Interfraternity Council Officers. And so um, the Association for Fraternal Leadership and Values, otherwise known as AFLV, has their Western Conference in San Diego. And that starts um, today. So I'm going to be heading out to San Diego for the next couple of days. Uh, a little cooler than I thought it would be. Um, was hoping for some higher temperatures, but um, it'll be beautiful nonetheless. The hotel's right on the water, so it will be a, a very great experience from top to bottom. Wow, that sounds nice. Mm -hmm. That sounds very nice. Okay, uh, another, I'm going to, I'm guessing this is the other question that you thought was really hard, but I, I could be it wrong. Was. Uh, no, you're yeah, right. Yeah, yeah most, people, uh, most people don't like answering this one, but we always ask it. Melissa, what is the best book about leadership? Well, it's, it's like Sophie's Choice, if you remember that movie. I mean, this is a hard one, right, to pick one best book on leadership when there's so, so many good ones out there. Um, I, on this one, am going to take maybe a little bit of a non-traditional approach. So I very much right now am into the book Team of Teams by um, General McChrystal and uh, MacArthur, sorry. And Team of Teams is... I'm not usually one that, that is drawn to military books in any way. Um, that's just not really ever been kind of a genre that has, has appealed to me. But this book is so fascinating, and I think there are so many things that we can learn from this book. Um, they talk a lot about just how the world has changed and how, um, especially when we're looking at, at military and other countries, how some have been able to adapt and change very quickly and others haven't. And so this, this concept of traditional structures of leadership or how we envision um, the concept of team before might not be what we're really 
dealing with today. And it's just the way it's done is really what it's really well done and, and really brings up examples that are applicable outside even of the world of military. And so that one to me has been really, really, um, I just, it was the, the one that surprises you, which I think sometimes those are the best books that you go into and um, are very surprised by. And so that one, Team of Teams, highly recommend. Mm. Okay. All right. So let's close uh, this Get to Know You section by opening up the Gripes tab. Melissa, I am in need of a grievance of yours. Can you share your feelings about those who would rid the world of the Oxford comma? Well, that's really hard because for those that want to rid the word, world of the Oxford comma, they also want to clearly uh, rid the world of clarity and understanding. So it's hard for me to answer this gripes question um, when, when that is really what you're up against. Because uh, I firmly believe in my, in my heart of all hearts that the Oxford comma provides necessary clarity in the written word. And I don't know, it, I, it, I try so hard to understand and to see where people are coming from. This is one I just cannot get my head around. It's like, why, what is it doing to you in your, yes, it is one more piece of ink, but it provides that clarity that we so desperately need. AP just went and threw it away. Didn't even, you know, <laughs> don't even need it. And if, so I, I have some very strong feelings on that. I just do not agree with those who do not like the Oxford comma or find it necessary. Look, I'm here for the Oxford comma. I really am. I'm a big believer in the Oxford comma, but maybe this is one of those situations where we just need to let our sentences be strong and independent. You know, maybe we want our sentences to have more friends, to be more clear, to be more, uh, you know, to be more comprehensible. And that's just not on the table for us. Who knows? I know. I just would like to know what it did to those people who are so strongly opposed. What did it do to you? Like, how did it hurt you that we are, we are so strongly against it? Yeah, the battle lines really are drawn. I agree. And, I, and mm-hmm. I'm going to tell you somebody who I don't want to fight with, a grammarian. Ooh, not, not interested in that. Not interested in that battle. Yeah. I know. Yeah. I know. Yeah. <laughs> okay. All right. Well, let's, uh, let's pivot from grammar to uh, an actual conversation about leadership. So, uh, Melissa, I brought you on so we could talk about um, a huge part of the landscape of leadership and higher education that we really haven't touched on much in the 40-plus episodes of this podcast so far, um, which, is, which is leadership in Greek communities. So um, I, I was hoping that you could provide some, uh, some insight into, into that part of the leadership world. So, You've worked in Greek leadership. You've worked in general student leadership work. What do you see as being different, and what do you believe is the same between, between these two areas? I'm going to start with what I think is the same or similar. Uh, I love so much Greek leadership because I do believe in the leadership lab concept. And so I, I know that this, the, the generation that we are working with in colleges and universities has absolutely the capacity to change the world and make everything that they do just a little bit better. And I think that having the opportunity in college to not just read and talk about leadership but actually get the chance to do it is an opportunity that to me is just second to none. 
And so I think when we look at things that are similar, I think you absolutely get that within student organizations as well. So you get that opportunity to, to put those things into practice, to work with people that are different than you, to navigate ideas that are different from your own, be challenged on your own ideas, um, and learn how to motivate and work with people to accomplish something is, is a lesson that I think we all just, if you walk away from that, from your four years or two years or however many years that you are in a college setting, like what a gift. Um, because you're going to run into those in your, in your world, real world. So I think there's a lot of similarities when we look at having that opportunity to be in the leadership lab and practice. Um, where I think we get kind of into some nuance and some difference is just the layers and the complexity of fraternity and sorority life. I think it's easy on the outside to say it's very similar to any other student organization. And, and maybe as a purist, we want it to be. Um, but I think that when you look at fraternity sorority, you look at the fact that we have, there's so much money involved. There's assets when you look at you know, housing on campuses. When you look at a single fraternity sorority organization, you have the actual members that are in that chapter at any given time. You have alums. You have advisors. You have potentially a house corporation managing those assets. You have a national, national entity that is you know, dictating and setting your brand, setting your policies, providing your insurance, providing direction for, for who you are and what you want to be. And I, I think we have that in other aspects of student organizations for sure, um, but I don't think we have it at the the complex nature that we do within fraternities and sororities. And so when you have that many people involved and that many competing priorities, and I think sometimes that many difference of opinions about um, what should be going on, it just makes it such a more complex and layered situation. And I think um, that to me is where that fundamental difference really, really comes into play. Hmm. Okay. Um, so I know that this is a, I know that this is a, a big question, um, but particularly given the amount of controversy and loss in the Greek community recently, do you think the way that Greek groups conceptualize leadership is still working? I think, yes, that is an absolutely big question, but I think that is the question of, of the, um, our day. And I think when we look back on this time, this is probably the, um, the number one question that absolutely every single person that is working um, not only in fraternity and sorority life, but also on colleges and universities should be asking. Um, when we look at how fraternities and sororities were set up when they you know, started to where they are now, the number of things that have fundamentally shifted and changed um, are really, really shocking. Um, and one thing that really hasn't changed is how we have conceptualized leadership within these organizations. So if we take one section, just it, again, the complexity, we could, we could do a 20-hour podcast, I'm convinced on this, but growth alone. So if we look at the size and scope of the organizations on many college campuses, we have been in an upswing of growth. We know that it ebbs and flows um, as far as fraternities and sororities go. Numbers fluctuate typically on a curve. Um, we have been in a, a season of growth for a long time. But there are some chapters, so just an individual fraternity or sorority chapter, that um, 
are upwards of 400 individuals. So when we think about how we have set up leadership where we have one person who is the president and maybe an executive board of, of eight members or nine members, and yeah, maybe we've got some committees, but we don't really know how to work with them because we've never really been taught. So really it comes down to that small group of people. How in the world are, you know, is that leadership in any capacity when you're just trying, you might not even know everybody that's in your organization. And I think that we need to take a hard look at that. Um, and is that working? And, and what does that really look like? Cause, and, and there's a lot of arguments around that when we think about, okay, you know, these huge organizations and we, one of the biggest things we're providing is sisterhood and brotherhood and that connection and we're taking this big university and making it smaller. Um, can we really do that when we have groups of 400? Like, how do we keep that intimate nature? And, and I don't know if we've really wrapped our heads around that um, or have that conversation because in a lot of ways, growth is good. And we, we want to grow and we want to provide people with the positive benefits of fraternity and sorority. No question. Um, but I don't know if our, how we have set up leadership right now, and, and I don't just mean the actual structure. So full disclaimer, Structure is one part of it, so having one president, exec board, rest of chapter. But I think it also comes into how do we teach, how do we educate, what, are, what does programming look like, um, how are we, you know, I, I think it's, it's one thing when you have big numbers, it's easy to say, let's go online and we're going to do an online program and we have 100% completion of our online program. Well, is that doing what we think it's doing? And so how, how is assessment playing into not only what we're doing from a leadership programming-wise, but then also the structures. And I think that um, those are the questions that we really need to be spending more time asking. And um, I think it's hard to ask those questions because these, these organizations are so steeped in tradition and um, so getting past that barrier to have an honest conversation um, is something that I think we really need to do as a collective. Mm. Okay, so sort of to follow up on size in our in our conversation uh, before before the podcast, um, you used a really uh, interesting analogy about Greek communities. So, um, how do you think that Greek leadership is comparable to megachurches? So, this is a concept that we talk about um, at the NIC actually often, and so our CEO Judd is one that has brought this up, and it's one that just has stuck with me so much. Is when we look so it's easy to, to say, well, maybe leadership isn't working or maybe they're just too big or, or maybe, you know, it's just, it's just not working. That's an easy cop-out answer. Um, but if we look at what's happening in some megachurches and how we've seen huge growth in, and how they have um, been able to create small group opportunities and how they've been able to incorporate apps and media and, you know, really form messaging and learning in a, in a different way and been able to adjust um, having multiple locations for meetings but having the same, you know, base level church. I think it's, it's a fascinating concept to look at um, and, and one that is not a natural connection, right? Like that's not necessarily when we think about where do we look for trends or where do we look for good ideas like, you know, thinking megachurch, like some, that's not a, a natural place that your head might go. But I think that there could be some things that we could learn, and, and not just in fraternity story life, but higher education in general, um, that 
there have been some things that have gotten figured out, and people are really getting things from that experience. And so, you know, you look at megachurch at the core, you're, ba- you're basing in values, which is what we are saying we are doing in fraternity sorority. Um, and you are, you are helping people grow. Again, what we are saying in our best days, we are doing in fraternity sorority. So I think that there's a lot of parallels um, and a lot of things that those institutions have really figured out that there may be some answers that, that can help us wrap our head around, especially in those areas where we're seeing a lot of growth um, and those big, big, huge chapters, which is not everywhere. And I, full disclaimer, it's not. Um, but I think it's just an interesting parallel that, that we could potentially be looking at and studying a little bit more. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, there, I, I think that there are certainly parallels there related to related to scope and uh, the process of, like, building, you know, smaller communities within a larger community. I mean, I, I think that there's – I think that there's there's something there. I guess there's a challenge of, you know, I, I imagine there's less, I don't know, risk to manage at a megachurch perhaps um, than, than in a, you know, from a purpose, you know, standpoint and that sort of stuff, yep. activity, that sort of stuff. So, um so I guess this this all kind of kind of aligns um, with with uh, the next question, which is, um, do you think you know in the context of every you know everything that we've been talking about, do you think that what is being asked of fraternal leaders in the name of leadership, do you think that that's fair, and does that align with where students are from a developmental standpoint? I think so. To answer the second part of that first, is it aligned with where they are developmentally? No. Um, we, I mean, everything that we know about brain development and, and where students are, it doesn't match what we are being, what we are asking of them at all. Um, I think the other thing I think about a lot is they're rightfully so. Um, I think that the the risky nature of of these organizations um, puts everyone involved in a really tough situation. And so, you know, if you are a national organization, so you are the one, you are providing insurance, you are the one, you are the name, you are the, the brand. These organizations have great programming, right? Like they're, they're, they're doing everything it, that, they, that they have com- identified as beneficial programming and not just leadership development, but policy interpretation, like here's the, here's the boundaries we want you to live in as an organization bearing our name. Um, and so they're providing that piece. And then it's on these 18 to 22-year-olds to actually do it. And we know that um, culture is going to trump that every day. So whatever the culture mm-hmm. is of that organization or of that institution, um, is going to absolutely, it doesn't matter. You could have the best leadership programming out there. You could have the best intentions, but that culture is going to eat all of that for breakfast and, and call it a day. And I think that um, it, we have done a disservice at times by saying this is a fraternity sorority problem. And we have data that shows that this is a fraternity and sorority problem. Don't disagree. It is absolutely there, and that is true. But I think it is a multiple truth moment of what are the other things that are happening or potentially feeding that subculture that we need to talk about because it is much more interconnected. And I think that when we, when we try to piece it out and just say it is a you problem, to me that is, that is the 
the number one reason why we are not pushing the needle on these organizations. Um, because we've, we're not looking at the interconnected nature. And so I don't think it's fair sometimes of how we have crafted it uh, you know, with, with these groups. And I don't have that answer. I think if I did, especially um, in this day and age, like we, would, we would be the, the top consultants on the block, let me tell you, because everyone is looking for answers. Um, and I just don't think we figured it out yet. Mm. Um, well, you know, I think, uh, you know, I think maybe looking at, you know, I, I think maybe looking at the training process may have, you know, have some insights. And so I wonder, um, you know, what mistakes do you think folks make when training fraternal leaders? I think, so I, I think one of the biggest mistakes that, that we make when we, when we train fraternal leaders is it, there's so many we kind of break it into buckets. And so when I think about leadership development, there's, there's character building, there's the, the skill development um, of what we think of when we think of traditional leadership development. Then there's this other bucket of policy interpretation and rules, and those get very blurred when we start looking at the leadership development for fraternity sorority members. So having a program where you go and you learn about your organization's policies, I don't know. I mean, are you potentially learning some leadership skills? Sure. Um, is that 100% leadership development? No. And so how are we balancing those things? Because, um, I mean, you and I'm sure most people that listen to this podcast, you're working with college students. They are very bright. They know how to read. They know how to they know what is right and what is wrong most of the time. It's the nuance and it's the actually when it is in front of them and they have these competing priorities, how the choices that they make. And we need to focus on that piece. Um, and so I think we make mistakes sometimes of going to the easy and what can we check the box. Like we have given you this training. We have given you this fact sheet. Um, and while, yes, that, that is absolutely one part of the puzzle, we don't look at everything else that goes into it. And so I think that the number one question I always like to think through is, if you, whatever you are trying to accomplish, what are the barriers to getting there? Because I think that should be the place that we start when we start doing any kind of planning for leadership development. Um, I think sometimes we start with, well, here's what I want you to accomplish, well, great. But we need to be starting with like, they probably know that. They probably get that. They probably agree with you most of the time on that. What is happening that is preventing them from getting there? Because I think if we were to listen a little bit more first, we would be fascinated with what we're learning and it would really help create leadership experiences and leadership development in a way that will be exponentially more useful to the end user and help them grow and help us understand really what they are up against and why that is not the case. I believe in fraternity sorority leaders. Um, I know that there are amazing men and women on our college campuses that want to do the right thing. Um, they just don't have the skills or they are up against things that they don't know how to navigate and manage. And so how do we kind of put aside our assumptions and, and listen to them and really dive into that piece. Hmm. 
Okay, so I, I portions of this uh, line of questioning have been, you know, challenging and really deficit-minded. So I was hoping, you know, we can end here on a on a positive note. I think community is a really enduring legacy of the Greek system on many campuses, and so. How do you think leadership preparation and sort of the leadership experience within the Greek community contributes to the lasting, um, the lasting impact of the Greek experience? I mean, obviously, you know, you referenced earlier housing boards and alumni involvement. You know, like people only care about something that that like really matters. And so, um, I, you know, I guess I, I wonder how you think the the leadership development process really um, contributes to that. I think it really comes back to the opportunities that you are given in fraternities and sororities really truly are, are setting you up in a way that connects you more to your institution. It, it builds community. It really helps make a lot, you know, even for a small institution or a mid-sized institution, that still can feel very big at times. And so mm -hmm. when you not only join these organizations, but then when you're in those leadership roles, I think that that building of affinity piece, um, I have not, I've seen it in, in specs in other aspects of campus, but never as strong as I have seen in fraternity sorority. And so I think that that, that affinity building, first and foremost, is just, it's hard to um, dismiss that or not value that um, because it is so strong. Um, I think the other thing is that when you look at what some of these students, these student leaders are, are dealing with, I think back to the time when, when I was advising on a college campus and, you know, we had student leaders dealing with severe mental health and having to make hard decisions to, you know, call police or to intervene. Um, we had situations where they were dealing with budgets that, you know, money very significant amounts of money and having to make decisions about what's the best use of that and knowing that these, this is members' money and how are we going to use that. Um, managing your peers and having to have hard conversations with you know, your sisters and your brothers about their behavior or about um, their performance in, in a job task. Like that opportunity um, I think is just so rare. And, and we see it in other areas, and I, I, I definitely want, want to honor that. And I know that um, you know, that has been one of the big kind of arguments when it comes to fraternity story life is like, you can get this in other areas. I don't disagree with that at all. Um, I just think that at the level and, and working through systems and understanding systems um, in a way is, is just different. And I, I think it very much provides a value and prepares students for whatever they're going to do next in a really unique way. Hmm. Okay. All right. Well, thanks everyone for joining us for the National Leadership Podcast presented by the National Student Leadership Program's Knowledge Community. And thanks so much to Melissa Kish for coming to share about the unique nature of Greek leadership and uh, the enduring legacy of that community. Uh, you can connect with Melissa on Twitter at K-I-S-H, that's Kish, and then Melissa the way that most folks spell Melissa, M-E-L-I-S-S-A. Um, and then you can get more information about the KC and our various social media outlets, including facebook.com backslash SA lead on Twitter at NASPA SLPKC and on Instagram at NASPA underscore SLPKC. And you can also connect with me on Twitter. I'm at Miles, M-Y-L-E-S underscore Surratt. 
S-U-R-R-E-T-T. And finally, if you're interested in being a guest on the podcast, we'd love to hear about your program. So please shoot an email to nasaleaderpodcast at gmail.com. Melissa, thanks so much. Thank you.